0: to Musonomics, I'm Larry Miller from the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt. And did you catch BTS on SNL?
1: Before we get started, I just wanted to test the sound levels. So, um, BTS is here!
0: The booking of BTS was the first appearance by a Korean pop group on Saturday Night Live. On this episode, the emergence of K-pop in the American musical landscape. And I'll talk with K-pop expert Hannah Waite. Historically, Asians and Asian Americans have not been a driving force in Western popular music. Due to factors ranging from their relatively small proportion of the American population to racial stereotyping and whitewashing, Asians were largely restricted to being a fringe voice in American movies, television, and, of course, music. However, the globalization of hit music accelerated by YouTube, social media, and streaming, and supported by advocacy for Asian inclusion in Western media, an explosion of cross-cultural influence has ensued between East and West. Over the last couple of years, K-pop, Korean popular music, has made a lot of headway here in the United States. What we see most often is idol music, often presented as girl groups or boy groups that incorporate sharp dances, fashionable aesthetics, a mixture of genres from pop to hip-hop, all wrapped up in well-executed performance. To get a better understanding of how this came to be, we chatted with Hannah Waite, Hannah is the co founder and CEO of Moonrock, an English language media outlet and forum that reports on K pop celebrities and touring activities, and a graduate of the master's program in music business here at NYU. But first, let's take a look at perhaps the biggest K pop stars around. That's BTS performing their hit song, Fake Love, at the 2018 Billboard Music Awards. BTS, short for Bangtan Songyongtan, or Bulletproof Boy Scouts, has been scaling the American charts in the last two years. With all three projects in their Love Yourself series peaking in the top 10 of the Billboard 200 and their latest album Love Yourself Answer, garnering 185,000 equivalent album units in its first week, it's clear that the group is a force to be reckoned with. So I asked Hannah Waite about how the group reached this level of American stardom in the first place. Why BTS and why now?
1: That's a very interesting question because by all accounts, it shouldn't be BTS. Why? They are major underdogs. First of all, K-pop is a highly manufactured genre of music. These groups are highly manufactured. There's a lot of thought that goes into them. Um, there are three companies in Korea that are sort of known as the big three YG Entertainment, SM Entertainment, and JYP Entertainment. Those were sort of like the pioneer labels and management companies of K-pop. They're the ones that really laid the foundation for what it's become today. And basically what they've done over the past few years is create these groups in a way that they are globally marketable. So they've started including... Chinese members in the groups. They've started including Korean American members in the groups, Japanese members, Thai members. They've started incorporating more English into their songs so that fans in other countries can sing along. BTS is all Korean, sings mainly in Korean, and they are not in any of those big three labels. In fact, they're the only artists at their label currently. So, by all accounts, they were supposed to be big in Korea and nowhere else. However, they had a couple of interesting things happen for them. Number one, they write their own music, um, which is very rare in K-pop. Most K-pop music is outsourced. It comes from Sweden, Norway, all those places that you think of when you think pop production. That's where the tracks are coming from. That's where the demos are coming from. And then they translate the lyrics into Korean and they assign parts to the different group members. BTS writes their own music. And it's very relatable to the youths of Korea. I almost think of it as a second Sauteji, which is Sauteji was like the original. They started K-pop by like adopting American hip hop, by adopting American pop, adding choreography. Before Sauteji, music in Korea was just ballads and what they call trot, very traditional. And they're the ones that kind of like broke the mold. And started singing about things like the pressure that the youths of Korea feel in academia, sort of the issues that they had with very traditional, conservative Korean social values, all that sort of thing. And BTS sings about the same thing. So their most recent song, Idol, which features Nicki Minaj, is about the term idol and what it means to be a K-pop idol and sort of their trouble, I guess, the way they grapple with that, which is very real. Compared to most of the other songs that you hear in K-pop, most of the other songs are about falling in love for the first time or when I saw you, everything turned shiny and pink and whatever. So BTS's lyrics are very relatable to not only Koreans, but also people all over the world who are young and dealing with depression or struggling in school and all those sort of issues that are actually relatable to people. BTS writes their songs about those same things.
0: BTS's originality and subversion of typical K-pop tropes boosted them to superstardom, but their success is the result of a perfect storm of events in the past decade. What are the factors that kind of set the stage for BTS and, I guess, the acts that will come behind them and ride that wave toward global acceptance?
1: I think there are a couple of factors. One factor is obviously there are a lot of K-pop groups that came before BTS that sort of familiarized the world with K-pop and what it is. So when by the time that BTS blew up, it didn't feel K-pop itself didn't feel as foreign to us as it used to. Five, 10 years ago, people were like my professor said would have been like, K-what? You know, they don't know what it is. But now that we know what K-pop is, it's not as strange. It's not as weird. It's very much a part of the music industry. If you go on Spotify and hit browse, there's actually a K-pop section in the genres. I think another huge factor is, which I kind of credit to millennials, is that we aren't as hesitant to accept new things anymore. Um, We were raised in the age of the internet. The internet itself is a language in its own. I think that we were raised in a world that was made all at once bigger and smaller by the internet. We have access to anything we want. I could get on Spotify and go listen to Swedish punk if I wanted to. I could listen to Mexican hip hop. So language isn't as much a barrier as it used to be. It's more about the music. I mean, you see the same thing with, if you look at the Billboard charts right now, I guarantee that in the top 10, there are at least three or four songs in mostly Spanish. So we see language itself becoming less and less of a barrier to people's musical preferences.
0: What is Hallyu? I've been reading a little bit oh, about Yes, yes, this.
1: yes. So Hallyu is the Korean wave. It started actually with dramas. Korean dramas. So in Korea, they have... I would equate it to like a limited series on HBO sort of thing, it's a limited run, maybe 15 to 20 episodes, and these dramas become insanely popular. There's always like one each season that just people go wild over, whether it's the main character or the plot line or whatever. It gets insanely popular and they started airing these in China, in Japan. And so what happens is that they love the dramas, but along with the dramas come original soundtrack songs. Uh So they write these songs specifically for the dramas. They're played at the intro, at all the like big moments in the show and during the credits. And so people started liking these songs. They were like, oh, my gosh, who sings this? Where did this come from? And so the songs became very popular. So interest started gathering for not just the dramas themselves, but the people that were singing the songs in them. So that's how it kind of started. And basically what happened was the Korean government actually saw how valuable culture could be as an export because of that and started investing in actively manufacturing culture. When was that? The drama started getting big in China around 2004, 2005. And that's sort of when the first, original generation of k-pop stars emerged. Um, You had people like HOT, Xinhua, Boa, these kind of people that were like testing the waters and laying the groundwork for the next generation of k-pop stars, which would be Big Bang, Girls' Generation, Super Junior, those kind of guys. And now we have the sort of third generation of BTS, EXO, twice.
0: How important is video?
1: Very important. Um, K-pop groups invest a lot of money into their videos. And I think that's sort of what that's what drew my initial attention to it was you have these like nine girls doing razor sharp choreography and perfect time with each other. And there's a certain certain group element to it that I think is missing in the Western market right now. Um, One Direction broke up Fifth Harmony broke up. We don't have that group dynamic over here anymore. And I think K-pop is sort of filling that gap for a lot of fans.
0: Is it safe to say no YouTube, no K-pop explosion?
1: Yes, I think so. I think that the entertainment companies caught on early to YouTube as a useful platform to get their music and their groups out into the world. I think that, yeah, YouTube is the primary tool that they used as just a way to export these groups. You know, Spotify wasn't around at the time. There was no way that they could get onto any international digital service providers. They were just all on Korean streaming sites. So unless you were in Korea and had a Korean stream music streaming app, there was no way to listen to these groups. They weren't on iTunes. They weren't on Spotify. They were nowhere except for YouTube. So YouTube is the platform that should be credited with the spread of K-pop.
0: What's the historical perspective, or really, how do you think about Gangnam Style? (laughs) Um,
1: Gangnam Style is interesting. Again, because it wasn't supposed to be Psy. It was supposed to be one of these JYP or SM or YG groups that were manufactured to be exported to the world. Um, so Psy was this weird anomaly where there was just this incredibly hilarious video. The song was really catchy. All you needed to know how to say was Opa Gangnam Style and then do the horsey dance. And you were, you know, instantly in it. Um, and so it was like this weird anomaly where everyone was just kind of like, what the heck? It was supposed to be my group or it was supposed to be this girl group or, was, you know, it wasn't supposed to be Kangnam Style. And so everyone was kind of like, is this a good thing or a bad thing for K-pop? You know, is, is, is this video portraying K-pop as this like absurd, cartoonish, ridiculous thing or is it opening the door for more K-pop acts to go global? Um, and I think the jury is still kind of out on that. I think that it's certainly a a sort of one hit wonder as it were, but it definitely familiarized the American audience to K-pop and what it is and sort of opened people's eyes to this entire industry coming out of the East.
0: In the West, we see lots of solo acts breaking out of kind of manufactured pop bands, boy bands Mm -hmm. especially. Is the same phenomena happening in the K-pop world?
1: Yes and no. So these K-pop is notorious for having very, very, very airtight contracts with their artists. And they work a little differently than they do in the U.S. Here artists sign option deals where they can do two to three albums with their label. If it takes them one year to complete that contract, if it takes them 20 years to complete that contract, it doesn't matter. In K-pop, they sign for a specific amount of time with their label. So most contracts are for seven years. And in fact, there is something in K-pop known as the seven-year curse. So if a group makes it past seven years, that's how you know they're going to be a legacy group. They're going to continue on forever and ever. Most groups don't. Most groups are burnt out after that seven years, break up, and then solo acts emerge from that. They'll go and sign with another label or they'll stay with their label with the promise that they're going to promote them as a solo act. But you don't see a lot of K-pop acts quitting their band to go solo. I mean, if you look at BTS alone, they're selling out two nights at Staples Center back to back. They're selling out City Field. And K-pop is actually very good about maintaining physical CD sales compared to most other artists in the world.
0: It's true. Physical album sales represented 74% of all recorded music revenue as recently as 2013. In 2018, 75% of all U.S. recorded music revenue and about half of worldwide revenue was from streaming. Back in 2013, every top 10 album in South Korea was a K-pop album. In 2018, according to the just-published IFPI Global Music Report, South Korea was the sixth-largest music market in the world, and Spotify hasn't even launched there yet. So how do they keep physical CD sales booming in South Korea?
1: They make them collectibles. So they have these rabid fan groups, right, that that want anything and everything that they can get that has to do with the band. And so what they do is, say you've got a five-member girl group and you have a new album coming out. If I were the label, what I would do is make six different versions of this album. I would have one album with all five girls on it, and then I would have five more albums where the cover of the album is an individual member of the group. What the fans will do is they want each of those items to complete their collection. So they end up buying this CD six times and streaming it online because who has a CD player? They're just buying it to have it and to have the collectible cards inside and the collectible cover and all the merch that comes with it. So K-pop puts a lot of effort into packaging these CDs in a way that I don't think is done anywhere in the world anymore. And it's effective.
0: With such dedicated fans and a market that seems to be expanding globally at light speed, it's clear that K-pop will continue to grow for the foreseeable future. What's next? Interscope, part of Universal Music Group, has recently signed Blackpink for the world outside Korea. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that?
1: Um, I have been preaching Blackpink as the next group up uh, for a very long time. I think those girls are incredibly talented they've got two native english speakers in the group um they've trained for i think 10 plus years before they debuted um i think they've got a lot of talent and a lot of potential i'll be interested to see how interscope works them if they market them as an as a western pop act as a opposed to letting the, I guess, team in Korea dictate their strategy globally. That will be interesting because there have been K-pop signings before. Girls' Generation was signed, I believe, also by Interscope back in like 2010, 2011. And it wasn't the most successful of projects. They put out one of their singles in English. um, And I think that they thought that their global popularity or their regional popularity in Asia would translate into popularity in America if they just sang in English. But I think there's a lot more groundwork to be laid in America than just singing in English. You know, singing in English isn't going to get you radio play. Um, It's not going to get you onto Ellen. And we've seen that with BTS. They don't sing anything in English, and and yet they're the ones that are popping off in America right now. So it'll be very interesting to see how that partnership with Interscope works um, and sort of how they frame the group in the United States, whether they'll frame them as a K-pop group or just a girl group. So we'll see. I'll be I'm very intrigued by the signing.
0: After Blackpink, Mm -hmm. what else is coming over the horizon?
1: Ooh, that's hard to say. Um, the, the turnaround is so fast on these groups. Um, it really is. So you see you see these groups debuting when the kids are 16, 17 years old. And it's almost like as soon as they release that first song, the clock starts ticking because there's a new and better group on the horizon. There's a hotter, younger group on the horizon. Um, and so I think the reason they sign these kids to a seven year contract is because they run them into the ground during those seven years. They milk them for all that they're worth. These kids hustle, they're on TV every night, they're doing reality shows, they're putting they're touring albums. Um, and they just squeeze everything they can in that seven years because in the back of their minds, they know that if you debut when you're 17, seven years later, you're 24 and there's a younger, more spry hungrier 17-year-old group that's out there trying to become you. So it's it's hard to say. There, um, there aren't any groups that I'm more excited about than Blackpink right now. I really think that they are next up, and I think that we'll see. It's already started with their collaboration with Dua Lipa. I think we'll see more collaborations coming from them very soon, I think that we'll see more U.S. activities coming from them very soon. So I think that it's going to be a little bit of a wait and see. And people are going to be watching Blackpink to see how they do in America and following suit or changing their strategy accordingly. So we'll see who can sort of like walk behind them as the next K-pop group.
0: Hannah Waite from Moonrock. Thanks for coming back to NYU.
1: Anytime. Thank you so much for having me.
0: From K-dramas and the beginning of modern K-pop at the turn of the century to its current global takeover, the K-pop industry is a well-oiled machine of talent and showmanship. Though not without some downsides of label micromanagement, its success has exposed the Western mainstream to East Asian culture and is spearheading a cross-cultural exchange across hemispheres. Not to mention, the music is pretty good. Thank you to our guest, Hannah Waite. The Musonomics Podcast is produced by Musonomics, LLC. Strategy consulting and analytics for and about the music industry. Production assistance this episode from Rupesh Barman, Tanya Kamayana, Lari Jacobson, and Fatima Ahmad. Our technical producer this episode was Nick Sadler. From the Music Business Program at NYU Steinhardt, I'm Larry Miller. Thanks for listening.